The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and it's time to see out the year. And I was trying to think of how I would do that this time. I already did a show about Christmas songs and the words in them, so can't do that again. And I've been in an etymology mood lately. You can probably tell from little things I say on the show that etymology is not linguistics. Word histories are like a butterfly collection. They're kind of fun, but they're not the point. But I've been kind of in the mood for etymology lately, partly because I'm writing that book about cussing that I told you about, and the chapter on fuck is now finished. And that involved some etymological digging around. So I'm just in the mood. And so I figured if I'm going to be relatively ecumenical, then I'm going to wish you a happy new year and we're going to look at happy new year, that little expression. But the problem is that the histories of the words new and year are frankly quite boring. You know, new goes back to a word that meant new. Year goes back to a word that meant year and maybe a part of it meant cycle and good God, who cares? But happy Happy has an interesting history. Happy is fun. So let's just see if we can get a whole episode out of the one word happy, because you know what? We can. Let's trace the history of that word from way back in the beginning. So so we're going over the steps of Ukraine. Remember this granddaddy to most of the languages of Europe that I've been telling you about, Proto-Indo-European, on the steps of Ukraine in this language that we call Proto-Indo-European, we can be pretty sure that there was a word and that word would have been Kob. The word was Kob. And this word Kob probably meant something like fortunate, something along those lines. That doesn't sound like happy. Happy Kob. For some reason, to me, Proto-Indo-European had a deep voice, but but actually it it makes sense because the sounds would have changed from Proto-Indo-European to, for example, English in ways that are very systematic. You can trace these things back, which is exactly how they come up with roots like Kobe. For example, how do you get from Kobe to happy? Well, let's think about the K to the H. Think about somebody who's having their centenary celebration for something. And think about how it's spelled, and you know that it would originally have been pronounced in its Latin source as k, centenary. Okay, you have that. Well, our version of centenary is hundred. So there's a Proto-Indo-European word that becomes centenary in, say, Latin, but then hundred in English. And so k and h have that relationship. A h can come from a k. So, kob, hap. Well, first of all, the h is a reflex, as we say, of that original k. For example, canine. Okay, that refers to dogs. Now, think about hound. Those come from the same root. Canine, then hound. Same thing. So, k goes to h. Did you know that back in the late 1800s, it was considered fashionable to say not canine, but a canine. That's how people would say it in kind of Wharton-esque drawing rooms. Canine. That's just something to know for no reason. But Kobe and Hap are related because a k can become a h. Now, imagining a b becoming a p, that shouldn't be as hard. These things just go along 
in a very systematic way, these sounds change regularly. And so, for example, to take another word, let's, you know, speaking of fuck, if we were, you can take it back. It probably goes back to a Proto-Indo-European root, poog. It would be something like poog. And one way that you can know is that, say, pater or pater for father in Latin, that's father in English. And so you get put to foot. Well, that means that you can trace foot back to a put. And so fuck goes back to poog. And as for the k going back to a g at the end of the word, think about the fact that we say cold, but then we have a word gelid. And that's from a Latin word that would have been gelid. And so you have a g going to a k. Latin's gelid, English's cold, the g became a k in some languages. That means that a word like fuck, you can trace it back. There probably was a word, something like poog. And that poog root, actually, which has been reconstructed, is the same thing as the pug in pugnacious. It's also in the word punctuate. It's also in the word pygmy. So just think. The word fuck goes back to the same root as pugnacious, punctuate, and pygmy. Go figure. Not too much, but go figure. At this point, it's time for a song. And we've been talking about coldness and fathers. And so I guess it's time for a song about somebody who's a cold father. But you don't really want to hear that. That's kind of a downer. There are some Broadway show tunes about things like that. But, you know, instead of it literally being about a cold father, let's do aggravate and papa see cold father aggravate and papa which is an ancient blues number and of course we have to hear bessie smith doing it and that means that we are listening to somebody singing 95 years ago about a cold father except metaphorically because it's aggravate and papa here she is 95 years ago So that's what happened in Ukraine. Now, we want to take it further than that. And so what happened to that language that was in Ukraine? Well, it went eastward and became languages like Persian and Sanskrit and Hindi. Then it went westward and became basically everything else. And one of the things that it became was a language that we call Proto-Germanic. Now, the chances that the people who spoke this language in kind of the neck of Denmark called it Proto-Germanic are very slim. That would be like us calling our language now Proto-something as if we knew what was going to happen in the future. They called it God knows. But Proto-Germanic is the language that eventually became, well, (laughs) German and Dutch and Swedish and Norwegian and Danish and also Yiddish and also Frisian and also this thing called English. Now, you can take all of today's Germanic languages and trace backwards, and you can know what Proto-Germanic words were. If you take the various words that mean happy and such in Germanic languages and trace them back, then we know that that Proto-Indo-European word, kob, became hampa by the time you get to Proto-Germanic. Hampa. Oh, by the way, Sarah, if you're taking notes, we have now hit part B. 
humpa. That's Proto-Germanic. Now, as we move on to English, humpa changes a little bit. Get rid of that M. Doesn't seem right. And of course, N's are delicate, just like with certain kinds of hair, split ends. Well, the humpa, you know that the A is going to drop off. And so next thing you know, you have hop in earlier English, and we have that as hap. Now, what exactly is hap? It's one of those words. It's in the dictionary. But have you ever used this word hap that means luck or fortune? Oh, goodness, what hap I've had today. That's not really a word. We only call it a word because we happen to have things called dictionaries that allow us to pretend that ancient words still exist. But think about what hap is in terms of the language in a wider sense. Mishap. Well, we never really think about what the hap is, but it means, you know, something that happened, such as happen, or somebody who's hapless, not hatless, as Chief Wiggum says in that Simpsons clip. This is Papa Bear. Put out an APB for a male suspect driving a car of some sort, heading in the direction of, uh, you know, that place that sells chili. Suspect is hatless. Repeat, hatless. Hapless. Hapless. Well, that's this luckless person. Somebody fell down a manhole and stubbed their toe. They were hapless. And so hap is not really a word in that we don't walk around using it. My goodness, I lack hap. But it's this little piece of DNA that's scattered throughout the genome that is the language, to use an awkward analogy. It's one of these cranberry morphemes, in a way, as we call it. It's one of these little bits of language where you use it all the time, but actually, if you think about it, you don't know what it would mean by itself. For example, somebody is handsome. We know what that means, but hand? What about it? Does it mean that they have big hands or something like that? Well, you know, life goes on. Oh my goodness, that is gruesome. What's a gru? Or to dispel, to impel, to repel. Okay, we know what those words mean, but what's pell? Nobody says, I shall pell you. You can't pell. It's just this little bit of stuff that's in there. Well, hap is kind of like that, but it also occurs in our wonderful word happy. Notice you don't even think about happy as being a word that refers to having this quality of happiness. You just say happy. But we know that e is this adjectival ending, and that means that hap must be something, and it did used to be, and you've got it in mishap, happen. And so happy. Now, you just know, or at least I just know, that I'm going to find a song that has both happy and hap in it. There are such songs. One of them was, well, frankly, there is one such song. And the song is From Gulliver's Travels the Cartoon. This was made by the Fleischer Studio, who did Popeye and Betty Boop. And this thing was about what you would imagine if the people who do Betty Boop and Popeye try to do a full-length aping of Snow White and its Gulliver's Travels. How good is that going to be? And to be honest, I say as a great old cartoon fan that the film is a flop. I would not recommend it. And, you know, even the songs are bad. There's maybe one good song, and it's this one. It's called It's a Hap, Hap, Happy Day. And if anybody is going to sing this, it would have to be Judy Garland, because here she is. She's a teenager. She's in the midst of filming Wizard of Oz, and she walks into a studio and does this and somehow makes it sound like the song means something. She was very good at this. Judy Garland is singing It's a Hap, Hap, Happy Day in 1939. It's a hap, hap, happy day. Doodle, 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 doodle
So happen happy. And so what about the word happy? Well, that first pops up in the 1300s. And at first, what happy means is lucky. Doesn't mean smiley yet. It means lucky. And it's interesting. Throughout Europe, words that today mean happy trace back to words that meant lucky. It's almost like somebody was planning it. In separate languages, you always find that same development. And so, for example, in Dutch, a word for happy, geluk. And in German, that's glück. Well, those words both mean both lucky and happy. Or something like French. And so you have bonheur for happy. Bon, you know that's good. What's the uh? The uh goes back to a Latin word, augurium. And that meant prediction, i.e. chance, i.e. luck. You get it. Russian, um, the chasne, that's not anything about lucky. But to the extent that I've heard it said that Russian has this pattern, they must mean udachny, which means lucky and also can mean happy as in you've picked up 50 rubles off of the street and you're running and you're happy. I, I don't know if that ever happened to anybody. Or even, yes, the feliz in, in Spanish, that goes back to Felix. And Felix means not only happy, but lucky. And Felicitas was the goddess of luck. Oh, what is that song in the back? Yes, I couldn't resist. That's the Felix, the cat theme again, because a lot of you enjoyed that. Whenever he gets in a fix, he reaches into his bag of tricks. Felix the cat, the wonderful, wonderful cat. You laugh so much, your sides will ache, your heart will go fit a pad. Watch and Felix, the wonderful cat. You know how I became interested in old songs? It wasn't the show tunes. I didn't grow up with those, but I would be watching Looney Tunes, and both of my parents were song encyclopedias. And I started noticing that Carl Stalling would often have the same song going in various cartoons in situations that were alike. And I would ask my father, I would say, what is that little song that they play whenever somebody's lucky or comes into some kind of money? And I remember my father said, oh, that's Lucky Day. And I said, well, I want that song. And he said, oh, it's too old. It's out of print. And I said, well, where can I get it? And he said, well, you can go to the free library. This is Philadelphia. And you can Xerox songs there. And so I went down to the library, asked for Lucky Day Xerox. Said I still have it. It's that tacky kind of Xerox where if you rub your finger on it the wrong way, you feel like you're, you're losing gametes or something. But it is a great little song from the 1920s. And you need to hear a bit of it. It's a very catchy song. A lot of you will recognize it from the Looney Tunes. This is Lucky Day. And here it goes. Oh, boy, I'm lucky. I'll say I'm lucky. This is my lucky day. Da -da -da -da. Now I'm in clover. I'm glad all over. I want a chavaray. Da -da -da -da. I found a horseshoe. I couldn't go wrong. And then, of course, you happened along. That was George Olson's band. So if I tell you that happy is in Middle English in the 1300s, then a question that might arise is, well, what was the word for happy in Old English? Because despite how miserable the times were, people must have been happy sometimes when they were speaking Old English. And so if they didn't say happy or something like that, then what did they say? And actually, their word for happy was the word that we now know as blithe. And blithe is a word that teaches us an interesting lesson because the original pronunciation of the original form of blithe was bleathes, 
bleathes. Now, why am I telling you that? Because of clothes. And I'm talking about the clothes on your body, not the clothes that's the opposite of open. You know how some of us just say clothes. It's written as clothes, but a lot of us just say clothes. You notice that there's some people who actually say clothes. It's a lot of people. I'm going to put all my clothes. <laughs> it's one of those things. One may prefer to leave the THN. It can be fun to stick your tongue between your teeth. I do it all the time. But the question is, if clothes has to be clothes, then how come we don't still say bleeds? Nobody wanted to say bleeds. And pretty soon they just started saying bleed. And now we have blithe. And so clothes, well, clothes. So it's just a little something to think about. Also, blithe and bliss, same thing. And if you listen to a lot of people of a certain young age these days, when they say bliss, it's more like bless, bless. If you were a Martian and you heard that, you might hear bless. I'm talking about the difference between my bliss. And then I'm going to take some random person. Let's say her name is Caroline. And she says not bliss, but bless, bless. She's a modern speaker. That's interesting because it means that this ancient word for happy in Old English has a reflex in modern English, which is beginning to sound like bless, which is interesting because one of the other words for happy in Old English was the word that also meant blessed. It was salig, which actually ended up coming to be our word silly today, believe it or not. But it meant blessed. So people are saying, I'm going to find my bless. And in a way, they're returning to this blessed word that was way back in Old English. I can tell you don't care, but I find things like that very interesting. And actually, it brings us to something that's kind of sad about happiness. You really do wonder whether misery was more widespread in the deep past. And frankly, it was. And, and this proves it. It's that happy words always trace to something else. It's very hard to find a pure happy word way back in antiquity. It's always something that means lucky or blessed or something like that. Blythe was originally affectionate. It meant somebody walking around smiling and handing out Jolly Ranchers or something like that. It meant nice, basically. It didn't mean happy. It's as if happiness is somehow an elusive human quality. It's as if sometimes you're happy. It's as if Vincent Newman's hadn't written a tune of that name for Hit the Deck in 1927. And, you know, usually people give you up-tempo versions of Sometimes I'm Happy, which is one of my favorite songs. Normally I would, but for some reason with this song and with the mood that I'm in here at the end of the year, down here in the valley, sitting in a big fluffy chair, sipping some bourbon with you, <laughs> of course none of those things are happening, but pretend if that's what we were doing, then I would want you to hear Jane Powell singing Sometimes I'm Happy in the the Hit the Deck musicalization that MGM did in the 50s. And I'm not usually a big fan of Sopranos even, but listen to Jane Powell singing this wonderful song. This always makes me not just sometimes happy, but always. Sometimes I'm happy Sometimes I'm blue depends on you I never mind the rain from the sky if I can find the sun in your eyes sometimes I love you 
Anyway, if we're doing a kind of junior history of English and the word happy here, then we need to bring in the French part. So there's the Norman conquest and all of a sudden French is just squirted all over English so that, you know, every third word that you say often is something that was originally from French. So how about the French and happying our language? Well, one thing that the French gave us was the word gay. That's not originally an English word. That is a Frenchy word. And whenever I hear the word gay, the first thing I think about actually just viscerally because of you know my random mental connections of what happens to have been my life is that from the Lovett Library in Mount Airy, I think it's technically in Germantown in Philadelphia, my mother used to borrow this book for me called The Gay Colors. I forget what I liked about The Gay Colors. I think they were these guys running around. They were splotches of color. I looked it up very quickly when I was planning this episode, and it turns out that The Gay Colors was a originally a French book. It was Les Couleurs Gay. I had no idea that they were French. And you know, the word gay actually once meant lewd. It didn't mean that you were this kind of happy person with a beret. You were lewd. You never know how these meanings are going to go. And there's something else about gay that I always enjoy sharing in case you're not basically Scottish. Do you know that in Scots and thereabout, gay can mean pretty in the sense of pretty good, or it was a pretty hot day, kind of quite. So somebody in Scotland can say something like, aye, it's gay cold. I don't know what accent that is, but that's the closest I could get. Aye, it's gay cold. And that means it, it's pretty cold. Or somebody will say, aye, they can be gay and handy. And that means <laughs> nice and handy. Or this is one of my, fa- I found this sentence in a book. She's a gay bit changed since first you kent her. And so, since you first knew her, she's a gay bit changed since first you kent her. Aye. And so, that's Scots and thereabout. You never know what's going to happen to a root. You've got cobe becoming happy. You've got gay, meaning uh-uh, uh-uh. Now, I know that you're, you're thinking, well, what about the gay that first comes to mind these days? And you know, that doesn't trace that far back. There's no such thing as... John Wilkes Booth saying something about the gay people he knew in the theater or something like that. It's one of those words where there are little peeps and squeaks here and there of it being used in very prescribed areas of the culture. But in terms of becoming a word that everybody knows, possibly the first attestation is the screwball comedy Bringing Up Baby, where Cary Grant, for plot reasons that we need not belabor, now is running around in a very feminine, frilly apron. And he runs into Mae Robeson at the door, and they have this exchange. What do you want? Well, who are you? Who are you? What, who are you? What do you want? Well, who are you? I don't know. I'm not quite myself today. Well, you look perfectly idiotic in those clothes. These aren't my clothes. Well, where are your clothes? I've lost my clothes. Well, why are you wearing these clothes? Because I just went gay all of a sudden. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. There's some ambiguity as to whether Cary Grant meant homosexual or just flouncy and carefree like the French colors. 
The first absolutely clear usage of that word that I'm aware of for the mainstream culture, where the idea is that everybody or something like everybody knows what it means. It's actually in a Broadway song. It's a Cole Porter song. <laughs> Big surprise, given his sense of humor. And it's the show, let's face it, it's 1941. It was a military musical comedy. And in one of the songs, one of these Cole Porter list songs of a sort, there is a reference to a certain bull and his preferences, where this was actually sung on stage. Here is Danny Kay, who was in the show doing a version of it. Farming, chasing chickens, that's the passion. Farming, raising chickens, that's the passion of our great celebrities of today. Bernard Shaw doing turkey in the straw. Don't inquire of Georgie Rabb. Why his cow has never calf. Georgie's bull is beautiful, but he's gay. Come spray in the hay, take it away. Mussin' up the clover cussin' When it's over, makes them feel informal and degage. So, that's the French part. Then after that, we got another squirt. You know, like a squirt of creme fraiche. And this time it was of Latin. Latin just sprayed all over this language. And so we got more words for happy and thereabouts. Like, like jocund. And I don't mean jocund as in making you into a jock. I mean that jocund word that is in the dictionary that, frankly, nobody really uses. But still, I've always kind of liked it. There's something about Jay. It reminds me of of kissing a girl. I don't know what what it is. It's because I like the name Jocelyn. So jocund. Well, what about jocund? The thing about words like jocund is that they end up giving us these sandwiches. They give us these triple layers. And so, for example, help, that's good old English. Aid, that's from French. Then assist is from Latin. And they have different shades that roughly correspond with formality. So it's like help, and then aid, and then uh, assist. See, it's like the layers of formality or something like kingly, which sounds like something that that sort of person is almost making up. Kingly, and then royal, and then regal. See, it's those three three layers. And you never know where these things are going to come from. Jocund this time doesn't come from a word for an athlete. It comes from a Latin word earlier that meant helpful. It's eucundus. Helpful ends up meaning happy. You can kind of imagine. And the way it happened in Latin is that there's this eucundus, but the word isn't jucund. It's jocund. It's got this O, jocund. And that's because there was a late Latin word, iocus, and that meant joke. And people got the idea that it wasn't eucundus, it was iocundus, and that helped change the meaning of it to kind of ha, ha, ha. And next thing you knew, you had this jocund word, which was based on a mistake. So much of our language is based on the sorts of things which a certain kind of person standing around would have classified as a mistake. It's like parsnip. Parsnip should be parsney. We should call, to the extent that we talk about them at all, we should be calling them parsnies, not parsnips. You know, what's snippy about it or what's especially snippy about a parsnip? The only reason we call them parsnips is because they're kind of like turnips. You know, parsnips and turnips are both vegetables that nobody really likes by themselves. It's the sort of thing you use to fill out a soup. And there's a quiet part of you that feels like you've really made it if you never have to eat any parsnips or turnips. That is why we don't call it a parsney. Or for example, a citizen. What's the z? Really, the original word was citian. 
Isn't that what it should be? This person lives in the city. They're a Sidian. What's the Z? Boy, there's a citizen. That would be somebody getting kicked in the butt and making the Z by accident. The Z is because Sidian got polluted by denizen. Because if you're a denizen, you probably are a citizen or you might as well be. And so a Sidian, i.e. French is citoyen, Sidian becomes a denizen. So all of it is just accidents. Life is just accidents. We have stumbled our way through 2018, and I'm not just referring to the president. I mean, all sorts of things that have happened to us individually and as a nation. But here we are. And, you know, it is Rankin-Bass TV special time. I hope that kids are still watching those. I have them all on DVD and sit my children through them. They often bore children these days, I'm finding, because they're so low budget. But Rudolph is a joy forever. And, you know, they made about 700 million of those specials. None of them are quite as good as Rudolph or The Year Without a Santa Claus. But there was one which I remember mildly enjoying, and it was called Rudolph's Shiny New Year. And it had a cute song that went like this that I always think of at this time of year. Bells ring out, everyone will shout. Happy New Year! Have a happy, have a happy, may's day be filled with good cheer. And with nothing less than much happiness all through the year. Should all acquaintance be forgotten in the days of old lang Here's my wish for you, hope my wish comes true. Happy New Year, have a happy, happy New Year. Happy New Year. And may it be shiny too. Remember when I said there's only one song that has happened happy? Well, I was wrong because it just occurred to me that that is a second one. In any case, oh, that was Red Skelton doing the little singing in there. You know how those specials always had these sort of mid-20th century stars. In any case, I want to play you an ancient commercial and listen for something kind of interesting. Believe me, there's a reason that I'm playing this. Here it goes. The big wheels are rolling. Listen to them turn. It's the big wheel sound of power with speed enough to burn. Roaring. Spinning. Winning. Adjustable seat. You ride low and neat. Look at that big wheel. Roaring. Spinning. Winning. It's the big wheel with low adjustable seat. Big wheel by Mark. Do you hear what's funny about it? What's a big wheel? I don't remember riding around the driveway in a big wheel. We called it a big wheel because they were quite well established by the 70s. I actually never had one. For some reason, my parents would never buy me a big wheel, but everybody else had them. And you remember how they sounded. It was a big wheel. But when they first came out, of course, they were big wheels. You got the back shift and that made it a big wheel. Thank you, Ruben Settergren, for that one, because I spend very little time going back into old toy commercials. And yet you never know what you're going to find to play us out. 
for this episode. I want to play something by Traffic. This is from John Barleycorn Must Die. This is the, the glad cut. This is something I never quite got enough of. It was still being played when I was in college, but for some reason I never got around to getting my own copy. And then it just kind of faded away. Now and then you'll be somewhere and you'll hear glad, but I've never gotten enough of it. Kind of like bacon and bosom buddies. You never get enough bacon, bosom buddies and barley corn. This is glad from traffic. What a wonderful cut. And we're all just getting enough of cornucopia at the end of this magnificent mess of a year. In any case, you can reach us at Lexicon Valley at slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. The show was edited, as always, by Mike Volo. I'm John McWhorter, and I'm sorry I've gotten behind on the letters, but I'll be back in the saddle soon. Thanks to all of you for your support in 2018 and best wishes to all for 2019. For whoever's hosting Lexicon Valley 100 years from now, yes, in the early 21st century, many of us did say 2019, while other people said 2019. You just know they're going to be writing pieces about that, just like now we know a lot of people called 1906. 1906! Some people just said 196. Some people preferred not to talk about the past at all. And obviously those people were not me. Happy New Year, folks.